Welcome to Donnacloney Parish Podcast. If you want to know more information about the parish, how to support us, or for other social media, please go to www.donnacloneyparish.co.uk. Thank you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks this evening for your word and for what it means to us. And we pray, Lord, that what we hear tonight would be fruitful and used, not for our sake, but for yours. Teach us, challenge us, and convict us by your Spirit to look to the Son and to live for your sake in your glory, we pray. Amen. Hello. Uh, for you, those of you who don't know me, my name is Andrew Irwin. I'm the curate in Banbridge uh, Parish. Uh, I was once upon a time here in Donnacloney uh, as a deacon intern. We had a splendid nine months um, and for the last two years I've been serving in Banbridge just down the road uh, in the neighbouring parish. So it's a pleasure to be back with you as we look at Acts chapter 4. Uh, just by way of context, uh, if we think of this in the larger section between Acts uh, chapter 3 and 5, what we start to see really in the book is a, a shift in the narrative, the gloss that had once been so shining at the start of the birth of the church, it started to fade. And the disciples and those who have come to faith begin to understand what Jesus meant about by a willingness to take up our cross and to suffer. What Paul meant when he wrote that to know him and the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Philippians 3 verse 10. Our passage this evening marks the beginning of that shift as the church and her new believers enter a period of profound suffering, yet profound growth. Why? Because like love or any relationship, when it's real, we will suffer for it. Think about it. Anything of value or significance or merit in this life requires some sort of endurance, pain, or movement. A marathon, degrees, academic achievement, new business ventures. For something to succeed, it requires passion or suffering. Peter and John and the disciples had found life. The essence of the gospel is that life is found in Jesus and no one else. Those who were with them and had been preached to had glimpsed something of this life, the beauty and the wonder of Jesus and life in him. And now they will prove it by a willingness to suffer for it. Last week in three in chapter 3 verse 11, we seen that Peter was preaching in Solomon's colonnade or portico, one of the outer parts of the temple, an act in itself that was no way illegal or dangerous. It wasn't where the preaching occurred or even the fact that they were teaching. It was what they were preaching that caused the offence. Thus, as chapter 4 begins, Peter and John are approached by a delegation of different religious leaders, priests, the captain of the temple guard, the police, in essence, and some Sadducees, those who did not believe in a literal resurrection and the word here for approach right from the offset implies negative intention. These are people not coming because they want to know more about what's being taught. 
These are people coming with purpose, with threat. So we consider the passage in three stages, and I've tried to follow last week's and use three words. Offense, or the arrest in chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. Defense, in verses 8 to 12, when Peter makes his defense speech. And a rather bad rhyme, tense, or tension, a clashing of authorities that we see here, verses 13 to 22. Offense, defense, tense. I wonder what really offends you to the point that you might act against it. We all know those people who seem to be offended by anything. They live in a perpetual state of offence, hurt and anger at things done or not done or what has been done to them. And today, especially, there seems to be so much offence in our culture. Peter and John have offended the leaders here in chapter 4 with the strength and conviction of their preaching. Rather than taking some of the glory of the healing unto themselves, they point clearly to Jesus and make sure people know about him and what they have done as they cry, repent. You murdered him. You murdered the author of life. Yet this hideous act was actually good news for them. For he who is life cannot be restrained by death. Uh, thus in dying, God was actually acting to bring life to all who would have faith in the name of Jesus. As people, as churches, and as a culture, I think we become numb to the offence of the cross. Become a piece of jewellery around our neck, a trinket in our minds rather than an instrument of death and torture used to keep people in check. Yet right here in verses 1 to 4, we're almost being asked to stop and consider again what Peter and John are saying and in the context in which they're saying it. Think about all they have claimed so far, that they did not heal the man by their own godliness. No, he was healed by faith in the name of Jesus Christ, one whom the state had executed, but he wasn't dead. No, he was alive because actually his death was all part of God's redemptive plans set out before the foundations of the world. Thus, the cry of response to the crowd is repent and have faith in the name of Jesus, the crucified one. This is an offensive message. One that had never been heard before. It offends the individual. It offends the state as it calls into question their actions. It offends all who believe that they are Lord of their life by proclaiming the sovereignty of God over all things. And to the Sadducees and those who believe, did not believe, sorry, in a literal resurrection it offends them by proclaiming that our hope is in the resurrection of the God-man, Jesus Christ. 
This is the implication of verse 2. The authorities are not offended by the healing of the man. You heal him if you want, that's fine. They're offended by the message that accompanies him. They were disturbed that by the teaching that through Jesus the dead would live. I think we've become so detached from this sometimes that we forget how challenging the good news of Jesus is to the world around it. That's why Paul could write, so when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 23. Because he was once one of those Jews who was deeply offended by the explicit nature of the hope in the gospel. He was so offended, he set himself out to rid Israel of it until he met God and found hope in his offence. Thus, the religious leaders are left with only one course of action, to seize these men preaching this message. And now the apostles have become like their master. In the eyes of the state, they are criminals. Wonder what gospel you believe. Do we challenge ourselves with the nature and the explicit reality of what is proclaimed here? That power, life and identity are found not in any schemes of this world, but in the death of the Son of God on the cross and his resurrection, who in dying defeated death. The gospel is and should always challenge us. That's why Paul wrote those words that it was the Jews were offended and the Gentiles say it's nonsense, but it's why he also furthered, but to those who are called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Verse 24 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The gospel may be offensive to those who are held captive by the powers of this world, but when it's truly grasped, it deals with our biggest sickness, sin. We have hope because of the resurrection of Jesus and what is imputed to us, perfect righteousness. And the Holy Spirit who works in us to make us more into the image of the Son. The gospel might be offensive to the world, but it is also hope. And we see that hope in verse 4 as people continue to respond to it and the early church expands in numbers to at least 5,000 men and countless thousands of women and children. This is the gospel of Jesus, that life is found in his death and rising and that we all stand equal regardless of who we are in sin, but that in the name of Jesus, we would be saved. Is this the gospel that we've believed? Do we value the wonder of what we proclaim? Do we see its infinite value, the way we see it in the ministry of Peter and John, as acts unfold and they fulfill the call in their life, as they 
fiercely proclaimed it here and in the days and years to come, that they would willingly become criminals for the sake of the cross and gladly receive the scorn and shame of the world to make the beauty of Jesus known. Peter and John find themselves in prison for the night. The religious leaders find themselves trying to figure out what to do with the movement they thought they had dealt with. They thought they had crucified, cut the head of the snake off, but not this one. One commentator writes, God's providence is on full display here. The temple rulers attempt to quash the message of Jesus by arresting Peter and John merely gives them another platform to promulgate the good news. The next section of the passage, verses 8 to 12, we see Peter begins to make his defence. As the next morning, the religious leaders who confronted Peter and John ask them, by what power or what name do you do these things? It's a stupid question. Peter has in no way attempted to hide the authority by which he acts. It's not his own, but Christ's. He has forever at this point been assigned to something beyond himself. And thus, in the power of the Holy Spirit, he takes advantage of this mundane question to begin ministering the good news of Jesus again. You see here a condensed summary of the same sermon that he preached to the gathered crowd the day before. He makes three points. The man did not heal himself, nor was he healed by Peter, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Secondly, Jesus is alive, verse 10. He was the one they had been waiting for and rejected, verse 11. Thirdly, that Jesus stands unique in history. Salvation comes through him alone. There is no other way to stand in the presence of God than through faith in his name. To reject Jesus is to reject God. One thing fascinating here in Peter's speech is that he refers to the religious leaders as builders acknowledging in some way their leadership. As he quotes from Psalm 118, verse 22, he informs them that in fact, they rejected the very thing they needed in their building, the living stone of Jesus. And in their rejection of him, he has become the cornerstone of God's new building, the church. Peter's defence here is explicit. It's the exact same as his offence. He acts under the authority of Jesus and he will continue to act regardless of how any earthly authority might react. His offence is the proclamation of Jesus Christ crucified and his defence is the resurrection of Jesus Christ crucified. Why? Because this is his identity. This is his confidence. Peter has grasped the lordship of Jesus Christ, that he is sovereign over all things, and thus he knows that in living out of the Great Commission, God will honour, protect, and work all things to his purpose and his glory. 
Peter's defence is based on a true knowledge of who Jesus is. Not simply seeing him as a, a, a saviour, a ticket to heaven, a solution to our greatest problem of sin. Peter has grasped the implication of his sovereign rule, not over just the cosmos, but every aspect of human life. The work of Christ not only saves, but gives confidence to live. If we grasp this as individuals, as a church, that the fullness of Jesus and what it means for our living today. Are we willing to proclaim the good news of Christ crucified in word and deed, regardless of the consequences, because of our confidence in him? Peter and John's willingness and loyalty to the King of Kings is what leads to this situation as it unfolds in the third part of our text, that tension when we see a clash of authorities, verses 13 to 22. One thing that is being made clear to us this evening is both the fullness of the work of Jesus and the fullness of our response to it. To truly grasp the wonder of the gospel means that we are consumed by Jesus Christ. It means that we grasp that salvation is more than a free ticket. To have faith in the name of Jesus means to recognise him as the author of life. To recognise him as the author of life means that we grasp that he is the means and the way to live. Not in days to come, but now and forever. It is life now. Thus, he becomes our model for life. His way becomes our way. It's not that we're perfect in our obedience, but in that the power of the Holy Spirit, as God the Holy Spirit works in us to sanctify us and make us more in the image of his Son, our desire is to live for Jesus and with Jesus. For the glory of God. To grasp the beauty of the gospel and the wonder of the cross means that we acknowledge that while grace is free, it demands all of us in response. And we gladly give it. Christianity is not just part of our life over here. If we truly follow Jesus and recognise him as the author of life, he becomes our life. All of it. It is all or nothing. And if it is all, then there will be evidence of that life in the life of the believer. Fruit. Our true identity will show. We see the visibility of Peter and John's identity in verses 13 to 15. Because when you belong to Jesus, not only does it show, it changes you as the Holy Spirit works to make us into the image of the Son. Think just before the resurrection. Peter, the disciples 
under the threat of arrest, abandoned their teacher and friend. Now, here, under the threat of arrest, standing before the powers of the land and those responsible for the death of their friend and teacher, there's no doubt about to whom they belong. Jesus. Perhaps in the night that the religious leaders hoped that a night in the cell might dampen this fire and this drama around the resurrection. Who knows? But it seems that whatever they were expecting Peter to respond to their question, they didn't expect this. They weren't expecting his answer. More than that, they, they weren't expecting his posture, his confidence. The NIV identifies it as courage in verse 13. The ESV boldness both add to the image here. Because what is literally inferred is that Peter had courage or boldness in the face of danger or opposition. He who denied Christ now stands firm for him. A wonderful picture of the work and fruit of the gospel in the life of a believer. What's the difference here? Two things. He has seen Jesus for who he is as Lord of all and the work of the Holy Spirit in his life to help him on this walk. The Spirit empowered Peter now confronts the authorities because Luke notes as he writes, that they recognise his performance above his station. To him, he's an, to them, he is an uneducated fisherman from Galilee. Now he's quoting scripture and, and teaching in ways what seemingly beyond his means. Him and John were an ordinary, ordinary, unschooled men. Verse thirteen. Yet more profoundly. The authorities also took note that these men had been with Jesus. No matter how they might want to deal with this threat, they know they can't because Peter and John have evidence of the work of Christ. The man stands beside them, healed. The religious leaders fear the threat of the crowd. And hence they do what bureaucrats do best. They retreat and they form a committee. And in verses 16 to 20, we see the outworking of tension as we walk in this earth. Verse 16 really perfectly summarizes the whole situation as the religious leaders ask themselves, what are we going to do with these men? When followers of Jesus are truly living out their faith, where the gospel is preached as Peter has preached it here, and when their mercy is acted out within the context of the mission of the church, of God's mission, the world will be confronted. The authorities struggle to know what to do here because God is at work. They see something beyond this world, and yet they are unwilling to recognise it. So here in Acts chapter 4 in Jerusalem, while they see something of Jesus and Peter and John, they still have yet to see Jesus as he truly is. 
the Lord of the universe. The one by which they will be saved through faith. And they're scheming. They realize they cannot act against these two apostles, not because it would be an act against God, but because they fear the crowd. And yet they still think they have some sway over these men. They still think that the basis of their power will be enough to intimidate Peter and John from furthering their work. It's the clash of two kingdoms here. The kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light or Jesus. The religious authorities come up with a plan to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people by instructing Peter and John to not speak the name of Jesus. In essence, they can believe what they want to believe about Jesus, his death, his resurrection, even his lordship over the cosmos. They can believe it as long as they keep it to themselves. In the safety of their committee, the religious leaders come up with a plan that they perhaps think will keep everyone happy. Peter and John can go on about their merry business, even with the rest of the followers, those who have come to faith, but do not share this name. It's a startling moment. The state and religious authorities believe they have a right over the servants of God to command them what to act. And on the face of it, it doesn't seem that bad. Believe what you want and just keep it to yourself. Yet as a command, it's an affront to the lordship of Jesus Christ and to the work of God in this world. In essence, it's a decommission. It's the opposite of what Christ commanded them at the beginning of Acts, at the end of Matthew. I wonder what you would do. I wonder how I would react if faced with a similar situation. And let's face it, this today can be an explicit reality for many disciples. That we live in a perpetually offended world today more than ever our claims and Christ's claims about himself are offensive. If you want to talk about Jesus, uh, the, the wise teacher, go ahead. That's fine. Even you can talk about living the Jesus way. That's good. But to claim Christ as Lord, to suggest that he's the only way to heaven, to know God, to infer from that, a way to live, a morality. Whoa. But this is our tension. That we are both citizens of a kingdom yet to come and here and this world. And so while we long for the coming of Christ, we live today. We acknowledge the duality of our citizenship. Yet duality does not necessitate necessity. Equality. Yet duality does not necessitate equality. In response to this decommission request from the principalities of this world, Peter makes his loyalties clear. Judge for yourself whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help of speaking about what we have seen and heard. So we see two things at work here in this moment. The tension that we've already seen and the integrity to the witness. 
as followers of Jesus, we will face this tension as we walk with him. We cannot be surprised about it. Uh, Jesus himself foretold it. In fact, if there isn't that tension, we must wonder what walk we are living. The tension of our citizenship is a sign of our rightness with Christ, that as we live for him and work for his cause because of what we've received through faith, it confronts the world. As we proclaim the gospel in word and deed, it offers hope to some and challenge to others. How do we respond in these situations? The same way as Peter and John did here in the power of the Spirit, with integrity, with gospel integrity. As Peter and John faced with opposition, faced with another command to cease and desist, displayed their citizenship and loyalty to the King of Kings, trusting that he is at work even when the opposite seems true. Integrity in our witness is a vital part of it. Consider the claims of the gospel that Jesus is the way to know eternal life, to know God, to live. What would it say if somehow we suggested otherwise by our action or inactions? This tension of citizenship is not an easy one, yet in the spirit we stand firm in the cause of the gospel. Our integrity in our witness will further the work and witness of Jesus. So let us never consider the cost of compromise as one worth paying. As our passage lands and draws into a close, we see really that there is only one king to whom we answer, and he is Jesus. The foundation for our living is Jesus Christ and nothing else. In him we have all that we need. There is nothing that this world uh, can offer us or take from us that will add or subtract from Jesus. It's why Paul wrote those wonderful words that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's why each of the apostles remain true to their calling and mission displaying gospel integrity in their lives, even to death. It's why church history is littered with the stories of martyrs. Because in Christ, they find something worth living for. Peter and John stand firm here as they face further threats. And when we stand firm for the cause of Christ, the world around us will take note. Because we know in him, in the words of that wonderful old hymn, we have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll. Fastened to the rock, we cannot move. Grounded firm and deep in the Saviour's love. So as we finish and go from here, let's take home just four points. The first one is, our call to be discerning and seeking to hear the gospel proclaimed. Chapter 3, we heard it last week, more specifically, Peter preached what is in essence a benchmark for every sermon 
that is taught in church. Here we see a condensed version, but it is the standard by which we must judge what we hear and what we listen to and allow to influence us. In the abstract sense, the message points away from the preacher to the fullness of Jesus. And in the practical sense, the sermon is about Jesus and calls for a response to his lordship. And so too we, Sunday to Sunday, throughout the week in what podcasts we listen to and what books we read, seek to be discerning. That's why Alistair Beggs puts it, unfortunately, preachers who distort God's word are all too common today. Sometimes this springs from a sincere desire to soften hard hearts. But hearts are not changed by compromise. Let us seek the gospel of Jesus and be refreshed by it day to day. Secondly, we see the fruit of the Spirit at work in the life of believers. Peter was once a denier and now he stands firm. And in the same way, when we truly see Jesus, we will walk with him and be changed by him. And then finally, we see the importance of our loyalty first to Christ as we live in this world and the truth that God is always at work. Verse 22 notes as this section finishes that this sign of healing had been performed on a man over 40 years old. A note to the fact that for his whole life he had known nothing else. But also reminding us and challenging us that God is a God of the impossible. That he will work all things for his purposes. And that in all things as he works, they point not to a person, but to him. So today, whoever we are, whatever we face, let our integrity, let our faith point to Jesus. And let us make sure the gospel that we believe is the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the goodness and the fullness of your word, that we can come to it a thousand times and drink from the well of life plentiful. And so, Lord, we pray that as we go through this week and think about what we've heard this morning and this evening that you would be at work in our lives that you would challenge us by the Spirit, that you would convict us of sins that we've still to repent of that you would take from us those areas of our lives that we refuse to give to you and that you would have your way in our life and in our church and in our world lord jesus we ask that you would make us more into your likeness as we continue to live for you and to seek you in these days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Donnacony Parish podcast. We're happy for this teaching to be shared for the advancement of gospel work and to help make disciples. For information about Donnacony Parish, please check out our website www.donnacony, D-O-N-A-G-H, C-L-O-N-E-Y-P-A-R-I-S-H dot co dot UK or find us on social media.